Chapter twenty seven of Looking Backward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Looking Backward, two thousand to eighteen eighty seven by Edward Bellamy. Chapter twenty seven. I never could tell just why, but Sunday afternoon during my old life had been a time when I was peculiarly subject to melancholy, when the colour unaccountably faded out of all the aspects of life, and everything appeared pathetically uninteresting. The hours, which in general were wont to bear me easily on their wings, lost the power of flight, and toward the close of the day, drooping quite to earth, had fairly to be dragged along by main strength. Perhaps it was partly owing to the established association of ideas that, despite the utter change in my circumstances, I fell into a state of profound depression on the afternoon of this my first Sunday in the twentieth century. It was not, however, on the present occasion a depression without specific cause, the mere vague melancholy I have spoken of, but a sentiment suggested, and certainly quite justified, by my position. The sermon of Mr. Barton, with its constant implication of the vast moral gap between the century to which I belonged and that in which I found myself, had had an effect strongly to accentuate my sense of loneliness in it. Considerately and philosophically as he had spoken, his words could scarcely have failed to leave upon my mind a strong impression of the mingled pity, curiosity, and aversion which I, as a representative of an abhorred epoch, must excite in all around me. The extraordinary kindness with which I had been treated by Dr. Leet and his family, and especially the goodness of Edith, had hitherto prevented my fully realising that their real sentiment toward me must necessarily be that of the whole generation to which they belonged. The recognition of this, as regarded Dr. Leet and his amiable wife, however painful, I might have endured. But the conviction that Edith must share their feeling was more than I could bear. The crushing effect with which this belated perception of effect so obvious came to me opened my eyes fully to something which perhaps the reader has already suspected. I loved Edith. Was it strange that I did? the affecting occasion on which our intimacy had begun, when her hands had drawn me out of the whirlpool of madness, the fact that her sympathy was the vital breath which had set me up in this new life and enabled me to support it, my habit of looking to her as the mediator between me and the world around, in a sense that even her father was not, these were circumstances that had predetermined a result which her remarkable loveliness of person and disposition would alone have accounted for. It was quite inevitable that she should have come to seem to me, in a sense quite different from the usual experience of lovers, the only woman in this world. Now that I had become suddenly sensible of the fatuity of the hopes I had begun to cherish, I suffered not merely what another lover might, but in addition a desolate loneliness, an utter forlornness, such as no other lover, however unhappy, could have felt. My hosts, evidently saw that I was depressed in spirits, and did their best to divert me. Edith, especially, I could see, was distressed for me. But according to the usual perversity of lovers, having once been so mad as to dream of receiving something more from her, there was no longer any virtue for me, in a kindness that I knew was only sympathy. Toward nightfall, after secluding myself in my room most of the afternoon, I went into the garden to walk about. The day was overcast, with an autumnal flavour in the warm, still air. Finding myself near the excavation, I entered the subterranean chamber and sat down there. 
This, I muttered to myself, is the only home I have. Let me stay here, and not go forth any more. Seeking aid from the familiar surroundings, I endeavoured to find a sad sort of consolation in reviving the past and summoning up the forms and faces that were about me in my former life. It was in vain. There was no longer any life in them. For nearly one hundred years the stars had been looking down on Edith Bartlett's grave, and the graves of all my generation. The past was dead, crushed beneath a century's weight, and from the present I was shut out. There was no place for me anywhere. I was neither dead nor properly alive. Forgive me for following you. I looked up. Edith stood in the door of the subterranean room, regarding me smilingly, but with eyes full of sympathetic distress. "'Send me away if I am intruding on you,' she said. "'But we saw that you were out of spirits, and you know you promised to let me know if that were so. You have not kept your word.' I rose and came to the door, trying to smile, but making, I fancy, rather sorry work of it, for the sight of her loveliness brought home to me the more poignantly the cause of my wretchedness. "'I was feeling a little lonely, that is all,' I said. "'Has it never occurred to you?' that my position is so much more utterly alone than any human being's ever was before, that a new word is really needed to describe it. "'Oh, you must not talk that way. You must not let yourself feel that way. You must not,' she exclaimed, with moistened eyes. "'Are we not your friends? It is your own fault if you will not let us be. You need not be lonely.' "'You are good to me beyond my power of understanding,' I said. But don't you suppose that I know it is pity merely, sweet pity, but pity only? I should be a fool not to know that I cannot seem to you as other men of your own generation do, but as some strange, uncanny being, a stranded creature of an unknown sea, whose forlornness touches your compassion, despite its grotesqueness. I've been so foolish, you were so kind, as to almost forget that this must needs be so and to fancy I might in time become naturalized, as we used to say, in this age, so as to feel like one of you, and to seem to you like the other man about you. But Mr. Barton's sermon taught me how vain such a fancy is, how great the gulf between us must seem to you. "'Oh, that miserable sermon!' she exclaimed, fairly crying now in her sympathy. "'I wanted you not to hear it. What does he know of you?' He's read him old, musty books about your times, that is all. What do you care about him, to let yourself be vexed by anything he said? Isn't it anything to you that we who know you feel differently? Don't you care more about what we think of you than what he does, who never saw you? Oh, Mr. West, you don't know, you can't think, how it makes me feel to see you so forlorn. I can't have it so. What can I say to you? How can I convince you how different our feeling for you is from what you think? As before, in that other crisis of my fate, when she had come to me, she extended her hands toward me in a gesture of helpfulness, and, as then, I caught and held them in my own. Her bosom heaved with strong emotion, and little tremors in the fingers which I clasped emphasized the depth of her feeling. In her face, pity contended in a sort of divine spite against the obstacles which reduced it to impotence. 
womanly compassion surely never wore a guise more lovely. Such beauty and such goodness quite melted me, and it seemed that the only fitting response I could make was to tell her just the truth. Of course I had not a spark of hope, but, on the other hand, I had no fear that she would be angry. She was too pitiful for that. So, I said presently, "'It is very ungrateful in me not to be satisfied with such kindness as you have shown me, and are showing me now. But are you so blind as not to see why they are not enough to make me happy? Don't you see that it is because I have been mad enough to love you?' At my last words she blushed deeply, and her eyes fell before mine, but she made no effort to withdraw her hands from my clasp. For some moments she stood so, panting a little. Then, blushing deeper than ever, but with a dazzling smile, she looked up. "'Are you sure it is not you who are blind?' she said. That was all, but it was enough, for it told me that, unaccountable, incredible as it was, this radiant daughter of a golden age had bestowed upon me not alone her pity, but her love. Still, I half believed I must be under some blissful hallucination, even as I clasped her in my arms. "'If I am beside myself,' I cried, "'let me remain so.' "'It is I whom you must think beside myself,' she panted, escaping from my arms when I had barely tasted the sweetness of her lips. "'Oh, oh, what must you think of me, almost to throw myself in the arms of one I have known but a week? I did not mean that you should find it out so soon.' but I was so sorry for you I forgot what I was saying. No, no, you must not touch me again till you know who I am. After that, sir, you shall apologize to me very humbly for thinking, as I know you do, that I have been over-quick to fall in love with you. After you know who I am, you will be bound to confess that it was nothing less than my duty to fall in love with you at first sight, and that no girl of proper feeling in my place could do otherwise.' as may be supposed, I would have been quite content to waive explanations, but Edith was resolute that there should be no more kisses until she had been vindicated from all suspicion of precipitancy in the bestowal of her affections, and I was fain to follow the lovely enigma into the house. Having come where her mother was, she blushingly whispered something in her ear, and ran away, leaving us together. It then appeared that, strange as my experience had been, I was now first to know what was perhaps its strangest feature. From Mrs. Leet I learned that Edith was the great-granddaughter of no other than my lost love, Edith Bartlett. After mourning me for fourteen years, she had made a marriage of esteem, and left a son who had been Mrs. Leet's father. Mrs. Leet had never seen her grandmother, but had heard much of her, and when her daughter was born gave her the name of Edith. This fact might have tended to increase the interest which the girl took, as she grew up, in all that concerned her ancestress, and especially the tragic story of the supposed death of the lover, whose wife she expected to be, in the conflagration of his house. It was a tale well calculated to touch the sympathy of a romantic girl, and the fact that the blood of the unfortunate heroine was in her own veins naturally heightened Edith's interest in it. The portrait of Edith Bartlett and some of her papers, including a packet of my own letters, were among the family heirlooms. The picture represented a very beautiful young woman, about whom it was easy to imagine all manner of tender and romantic things. 
My letters gave Edith some material for forming a distinct idea of my personality, and both together sufficed to make the sad old story very real to her. She used to tell her parents, half-jestingly, that she would never marry till she found a lover like Julian West, and there were none such nowadays. Now all this, of course, was merely the daydreaming of a girl whose mind had never been taken up by a love affair of her own, and would have had no serious consequence but for the discovery that morning of the buried vault in her father's garden, and the revelation of the identity of its inmate. For when the apparently lifeless form had been borne into the house, the face in the locket found upon the breast was instantly recognized as that of Edith Bartlett, and by that fact, taken in connection with the other circumstances, they knew that I was no other than Julian West. Even had there been no thought, as at first there was not, of my resuscitation, Mrs. Leeds said she believed that this event would have affected her daughter in a critical and lifelong manner. The presumption of some subtle ordering of destiny, involving her fate with mine, would under all circumstances have possessed an irresistible fascination for almost any woman. Whether when I came back to life a few hours afterward, and from the first seemed to turn to her with a peculiar dependence, and to find a special solace in her company, she had been too quick in giving her love at the first sign of mine, I could now, her mother said, judge for myself. If I thought so, I must remember that this, after all, was the twentieth and not the nineteenth century, and love was, no doubt, now quicker in growth as well as franker in utterance than then. For Mrs. Leed I went to Edith. When I found her, it was first of all to take her by both hands and stand a long time in rapt contemplation of her face. As I gazed, the memory of that other Edith, which had been affected as with a benumbing shock by the tremendous experience that had parted us, revived, and my heart was dissolved with tender and pitiful emotions, but also very blissful ones. For she who brought to me so poignantly the sense of my loss was to make that loss good. It was as if from her eyes Edith Bartlett looked into mine, and smiled consolation to me. My fate was not alone the strangest, but the most fortunate that ever befell a man. A double miracle had been wrought for me. I had not been stranded upon the shore of this strange world to find myself alone and companionless. My love, whom I had dreamt lost, had been re-embodied for my consolation. When, at last, in an ecstasy of gratitude and tenderness, I folded the lovely girl in my arms, the two Ediths were blended in my thought nor have they ever since been clearly distinguished. I was not long in finding that on Edith's part there was a corresponding confusion of identities. Never, surely, was there between freshly united lovers a stranger talk than ours that afternoon. She seemed more anxious to have me speak of Edith Bartlett than of herself, of how I had loved her than how I loved herself, rewarding my fond words concerning another woman with tears and tender smiles and pressures of the hand. "'You must not love me too much for myself,' she said. "'I shall be very jealous for her. I shall not let you forget her. I am going to tell you something which you may think strange. Do you not believe that spirits sometimes come back to the world to fulfil some work that lay near their hearts? What if I were to tell you that I have sometimes thought that her spirit lives in me, that Edith Bartlett—' not Edith Leet is my real name. I cannot know it. 
Of course none of us can know who we really are. But I can feel it. Can you wonder that I have such a feeling, seeing how my life was affected by her and by you, even before you came? So, you see, you need not trouble to love me at all, if only you are true to her. I shall not be likely to be jealous. Dr. Leed had gone out that afternoon, and I did not have an interview with him till later. He was not apparently wholly unprepared for the intelligence I conveyed, and shook my hand heartily. Under any ordinary circumstances, Mr. West, I should say that this step had been taken on rather short acquaintance. But these are decidedly not ordinary circumstances. In fairness, perhaps I ought to tell you, he added smilingly, that while I cheerfully consent to the proposed arrangement, you must not feel too much indebted to me, as I judge my consent is a mere formality. From the moment the secret of the locket was out, it had to be, I fancy. Why, bless me, if Edith had not been there to redeem her great-grandmother's pledge, I really apprehend that Mrs. Leeds' loyalty to me would have suffered a severe strain. That evening the garden was bathed in moonlight, and till midnight Edith and I wandered to and fro there, trying to grow accustomed to our happiness. "'What should I have done if you had not cared for me?' she exclaimed. "'I was afraid you were not going to. What should I have done then?' when I felt I was consecrated to you. As soon as you came back to life, I was as sure as if she had told me that I was to be to you what she could not be, but that could only be if you would let me. Oh, how I wanted to tell you that morning, when you felt so terribly strange among us, who I was, but dared not open my lips about that, or let father or mother. That must have been what you would not let your father tell me, I exclaimed referring to the conversation I had overheard as I came out of my trance. "'Of course it was,' Edith laughed. "'Did you only just guess that? Father, being only a man, thought that it would make you feel among friends to tell you who we were. He did not think of me at all. But Mother knew what I meant, and so I had my way. I could never have looked you in the face if you had known who I was. It would have been forcing myself on you quite too boldly. I am afraid you think I did that to-day.' as it was. I am sure I did not mean to, for I know girls were expected to hide their feelings in your day, and I was dreadfully afraid of shocking you. Ah, me! How hard it must have been for them to have always had to conceal their love like a fault! Why did they think it such a shame to love anyone till they had been given permission? It is so odd to think of waiting for permission to fall in love. Was it because men in those days were angry when girls loved them? That is not the way women would feel, I am sure, or men either, I think, now. I don't understand it at all. That will be one of the curious things about the women of those days that you will have to explain to me. I don't believe Edith Bartlett was so foolish as the others. After sundry ineffectual attempts at parting, she finally insisted that we must say good-night. I was about to imprint upon her lips the positively last kiss, when she said, with an indescribable archness, one thing troubles me. Are you sure that you quite forgive Edith Bartlett for marrying anyone else? The books that have come down to us make out lovers of your time more jealous than fond, and that is what makes me ask. It would be a great relief to me if I could feel sure that you are not in the least jealous of my great-grandfather for marrying your sweetheart. May I tell my great-grandmother's picture, when I go to my room, that you quite forgive her for proving false to you? Will the reader believe it, 
this coquettish quip, whether the speaker herself had any idea of it or not, actually touched, and with the touching, cured a preposterous ache of something like jealousy, which I had been vaguely conscious of, ever since Mrs. Leed had told me of Edith Bartlett's marriage. Even while I had been holding Edith Bartlett's great-granddaughter in my arms, I had not, till this moment, so illogical are some of our feelings, distinctly realized that but for that marriage I could not have done so. The absurdity of this frame of mind could only be equalled by the abruptness with which it dissolved, as Edith's roguish query cleared the fog from my perceptions. I laughed as I kissed her. "'You may assure her of my entire forgiveness,' I said. "'Although, if it had been any man but your great-grandfather whom she married, it would have been a very different matter.' On reaching my chamber that night, I did not open the musical telephone that I might be lulled to sleep with soothing tunes as had become my habit. For once my thoughts made better music than even twentieth-century orchestra's discourse, and it held me enchanted till well toward morning when I fell asleep. End of chapter 27